This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, You Can Rejoin Joy, Blogging for Today's Psychology, Volume 9 in the Rejoining Joy book series, and the author is Dr. Gerald Young. And Dr. Young joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Dr. Young. How are you doing? Let me read a couple of things that you've written so we'll understand in the general nature what your uh, book is about. You say the book provides strategies and techniques for effective ways of daily living from a psychological viewpoint that one can apply through self-discovery and hope for improvement. So this book is... I understand a collection of blogs that you've done for a magazine. That's right. I wrote them for the magazine called Psychology Today uh, in the space of uh, less than one year. And so they form a a coherent message. There's uh, really two aspects, I think, to all my books. Uh, One is that there's general messages and how to deal with stress, uh, how to self-improve and uh, um, how to tell oneself better stories, how to think more positively. That would be the cognitive side of it, if you will. And But we also need behavioral techniques such as breathing exercises, meditation, if you will, that helps calm down the body and mind so we can be more positive and optimistic and and, and turn some of those negative thoughts we have into more positive thoughts and a, uh, a good motivation to um, deal with stress and to improve uh, our habits and our self-growth. This is part of a book series. This is volume nine, so obviously there's eight other volumes. Yes, sir. And uh, again, these are uh, more or less having the same messages, but in different ways. So uh, how can we improve ourselves? Uh, how can we have the grand strategies to to be more optimistic, to tell ourselves better stories, and to tell others better stories, and and how can we learn specific techniques to help us do that. So uh, I have a series of uh, books with essays in them, uh, with graphs and figures uh, that are explained one by one in short little blurbs, something like a blog. Um, I have a workbook of exercises. I have a, a small book of sayings that are inspirational and get at the same message. And uh, this is the latest one in the series after that. Uh, the, this, the, the others were written. There's also one book that collects the best of the prior books together. Dr. Young, tell us a little bit about your professional background. Well, I think I'm um, a person who can... Uh, write well for the uh, tasks that I've just, for, for the books that I've just described to you because I'm a professor of psychology at York University in Toronto. Uh, I do a lot of research 
and write books and, and articles. And um, I have a private practice where I'm dealing with people who have stress and trauma issues and self-growth issues. And so everything sort of comes together in all three areas. And the ultimate product are these nine books to help uh, more people than in my office, but uh, people out there in the public. And also psychologists who uh, want to use my books to help them with their patients and also the patients themselves. So uh, there's a lot of material here that can help a lot of different audiences. You talk about self-help, you talk about self-growth, and you say it's a person's birthright. And that often, though, this self, this self-change is uh, fairly difficult for most. Uh, how does your book help us go through that process? Uh, by birthright, I mean that no matter what the difficult circumstances we find them ourselves in, we're not just fixed facts, repetitions of what our genes have prescribed for us or what our environment, even how negative, has prescribed for us. We have a choice. We have a voice. We can look back at our biology, if you will, and our environment and how they interact to make us whom we are. And we're the third force. We're the self who can say, no, this habit, this uh, direction in my life, uh, I want to change those. And I want to become a better person, and I want to move forward, and I want to take charge. Uh, we, we don't have to be uh, people who have our biology or environment take charge. We can take charge ourselves and develop better habits and grow. You call and it might be very hard for some people, for sure, given the extensive problems they have uh, environmentally and what has happened to them throughout their development, but there, there's always hope. So everyone can do this. I think so, and there might they might need professional help mm-hmm. to get them through it. And um, I have written that the self help books can be an adjunct, as I said. If people are seeing psychologists, the self help books can be uh, used either by the psychologist or on the side to uh, help the psychologist or psychiatrist or other mental health professional in, in what's going on in your life. You have uh, different sections of your book. Let's see, we've got uh, 11 sections, all, all different kinds of topics of these blogs. Now, are these blogs the type of uh, reading, uh, you even call it light reading. It's not academic, obviously. It's, it's kind of help right. us to focus on, the, you know, on a certain uh, topic or uh, an experience and help us go from there. That's right. So after I wrote the blogs, um, I try to organize them into sections, and um, I think that gives some unity to the book. Uh, light reading in the sense that they're not very long, so that most around a thousand words, and light reading in the sense that you say they're not academic. But at the same time, they're serious, some of them, and um, they help you reflect on your life and how to improve it. So uh, some of them might need a second reading. But um, the overall message is that uh, you can do it, and the blogs can help you do it. Uh, sections titled such as Reclaiming Joy, Regaining Yourself, uh, Rejoining Relationships, uh, Repairing the Self. Uh, this one kind of jumps out at me. Keeping Control in Chaos. Now, uh, we often find ourselves kind of overwhelmed in a stressful world. That's right. Well, um, 
overviewing the various sections, for example, some of the blocks concern relationships, uh, even intimacy and sex. Uh, some of them concern family and children. Uh, but as you say, one of the sections involves chaos. So sometimes the world is so uh, um, difficult around us and sometimes our developmental history is so problematic that the world seems chaotic even if uh, the present might not be so difficult. But we bring the chaotic baggage with us and uh, hopefully through uh, self-help and or dealing with the right professional, um, things become easier, both in terms of seeing the wider picture of your world, uh, seeing uh, a different pathway, uh, working with bad habits and developing better ones, and um, also using specific strategies such as breathing techniques, uh, muscle relaxation, uh, and other things that psychologists might teach to calm down the body and mind so that we can develop a, a better motivation and a better attitude and work, even if it is difficult, to some of the chaos of the past and the present. Well, you have you one, one uh, looks like, blog for rejoining relationships, section four. How do you make St. Valentine's Day last? Everyone wants to do that. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, I believe that's the blog that had the most hits on the website. And uh, um, it, it's way beyond the issue of just um, uh, rejoining sex. It was about uh, being with your partner, uh, fully present, uh, listening carefully, knowing how to communicate with the partner. Um, one strategy, for example, I don't know if it's in that blog that I like to talk about, is and instead of giving directives to people, and that would apply to children as well, um, using the word maybe, like maybe we can go out to a new movie as opposed to we're going out tonight, even if you're busy. And so there's ways of speaking to people to give them uh, an opening, an option, and how to respond and let them choose rather than you imposing. And uh, uh, there's all sorts of strategies that we can use to make communication a two-way street uh, rather than a one-way viaduct. Well, in this world, there's a lot of injury and illness. You have a section on that, Section 7. Uh, and, of course, a lot of people, unfortunately, tragically, hear that phrase, it's cancer. Right. Well, um, I think no matter what the illness or injury is, um, psychology can help. Um, now, my practice is in rehabilitation um, for a large part, so I'm dealing with uh, people who uh, have very serious injuries, people who have lost partners and children uh, in accidents, um, pe children who are orphaned. And as a psychologist, we always want to give hope and, in the way I've been describing, um, give strategies for dealing with uh, uh, the worst tragedies, tragedies that can happen. And I think the same is about uh, cancer. Uh, for cancer, um, we don't know what the ultimate outcome is going to be. Uh, the doctors might have their prognoses, but psychology can play a role in uh, making each day better and giving hope and motivation to get through the day. And, and by do, having that, we don't know if that can actually help, uh, um, you know, life longer, uh, a longer life to take place, but certainly it can make each day that we might have left better, and don't forget, many cancers are not uh, of the uncurable kind or the terminal kind, 
but interventions medical can help. And so we always have to keep hope, whether, no matter what the illness is, on the one hand. On the other hand, that happens to refer to uh, my own diagnosis and uh, of cancer. And obviously, I have the very same attitude. Um, keep a positive framework and just keep going. And uh, that, re- that really has helped me. And in your section on personal perspectives, you have a blog on spiritualities. Right. And I try to uh, write a very uh, open um, log on that question. It's not about religion per se or um, praying in a religious way. It's about being open to uh, spiritual uh, knowledge, spiritual experience, uh, spiritual encounter, um, in, in the broadest sense of the word, uh, communing with nature, uh, communing with uh, ideas of... Uh, of helping nature and not just being so taken uh, by um, our uh, personal lives and problems, but opening up to the world, if that makes sense. And that gives a, a certain internal peace and uh, a good way of uh, encountering the world as someone who wants to be helpful. We have a couple of minutes left. Uh, this last section, last words for your new beginning. There's one that has an interesting uh, title, The Smallest of Lights Can Cast the Largest of Shadows. Tell us about that. Well, um, again, it's not so much getting to the end and getting a path that's full of fulfillment right away. It's a question of being on the right path. And growth is something uh, in the self-help field as well. It's about um, getting there rather than arriving. Because uh, even when we arrive somewhere to a goal that we want, then there's always a next goal. So being positive and uh, focusing on the positives always helps. And it might be a little light that we encounter that can spread a lot of uh, effect on people. And it's not only big goals in life, but it's the daily encounters that we have uh, every second and every minute with people. And being positive that way can have as much uh, an impact on people as accomplishing the greatest things with the greatest goals. So self-growth is about what's happening each moment of the day rather than accomplishing um, end goals like uh, that, are, that are material or work-related or having this person arrive at that end in your family about the moment-by-moment encounters of life where we really want to be present with people and impact them with a little light and even a big light each second of the day. So we don't have to just give in and be a victim. We can take charge at least a little bit each day and change our lives. That makes a lot of sense to me. And maybe you should write the next blog. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it it all makes sense. We appreciate you being with us and... uh, Dr. Young's book, You Can Rejoin Joy, Blogging for Today's Psychology, Volume 9 in the Rejoining Joy book series. Dr. Young, tell us how to get your book. Well, there's a a website um, called rejoiningjoy.com that you might want to uh, visit. And uh, from there, there's uh, various books that are available in the series, including the one on um, blogging. And uh, that's one way, and I would imagine that iUniverse, uh, 
my publishing partner will uh, uh, let us know other ways, and they will be indicated uh, through links on the website. So go to rejoiningjoy.com, and um, you will have a, a great self-help improvement experience beginning. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Gerald Young, for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you so much, sir. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear these latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Evermore, people have the means to live, but no meaning to live for. These are the words of Dr. Victor Frankel, the inspiration for the movie Victor and I. That's V-I-K-T-O-R and I, movie.com. And TalkSense Radio, The Meaning Connection, with host Mary Similuka and frequent contributor Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central on toginet.com. More and more people today are discarding their quest for money, possessions, and things and are instead beginning a serious quest to find meaning in life. Until now, these discussions were historically in the hands of priests, ministers, and scribes, then to philosophers, psychiatrists, and psychologists. Now, these deep discussions are where they should be, in the hands of individuals, on the air, with you. Talk Sense Radio, The Meaning Connection, with your host, Mary Similuka, and frequent contributor, Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central, on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Ports of Call, Journeys in Ministry. And the author is Reverend Richard Leonard. And Reverend Leonard joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Reverend. (laughs) Hello, how are you, sir? Well, great to have you with us. Uh, Let me read what you've written to kind of set the stage for our discussion of your book, you say this, it is a collection of stories and events that came my way as a clergyman for many decades in the world's most interesting and dynamic city. And of course, that is New York City. That's the Big Apple. (laughs) (laughs) I've been here 56 years, so I think I know New York pretty well. But you go all the way back, uh, your experiences go all the way back to... uh, Selma, when you marched back uh, many decades ago. Yeah, yes, I happened to be one of the 300 who was able to make the march from Selma to Montgomery, and I think I was, uh, well, I know who now, that I was the only one who was writing all those time that I marched, because uh, most of the participants, 274 of them, were uh, close to illiterate uh, and from the local area down there. 
and the rest of us uh, were there for symbolic reasons. And uh, so I, I was able to kind of size up the group, and it was raining most of the time, and I'm just a person who keeps writing. So I kept writing as we marched. Well, you're described as a liberal minister in New York City area for 54 years. You have pastored a number of churches. Yes, I have, but all in the New York area. And married hundreds, and you've had uh, lots of you children. Say thousands, thousands, more there than four thousand couples. Four thousand <laughs> couples. And that's eight thousand people, if you want to do the math. <laughs> that's right. And so, this ports of call, as you put it, is a sampler of your next book to come. But let's focus on this. Uh, book. You've broken it down into uh, different sections. You have sermons from the quarterly, poems, annual report, and then you have a couple short stories and an epilogue. Uh, what really is the reason for including some selected sermons, just so we can get to know you better? Yes. Well, uh, when I had finished my book about Selma, and uh, it is in the National Archives, uh, and I discovered that I I could, in fact, put a book together. Uh, I began to think, you know, there are other things that I would like to leave behind, uh, probably some of my better sermons. Now, uh, I, I will have to say that uh, preaching has been a part of my life, as it is for every clergyman, but uh, so have the weddings and the memorials and uh, uh, the various places where you appear on request and so forth. And uh, uh, but I thought let's let's preserve some of the sermons, uh, and uh, the next thing I wanted to preserve was uh, this story about the day the Russians came. When I was asked to do uh, somebody a favor and see that uh, a group of Russians got escorted to uh, it, within uh, Kennedy Airport from one terminal to another, and that turned out to be the most incredible story. Uh, a story, and uh, uh, when I when that had happened, uh, I, I came home and I said to Polly, "Don't say a word until I write down everything that happened today." When I did what I thought was going to be an easy thing, and uh, the what made the story even more interesting was that when these Russians went back to Russia, uh, they went a different route. They didn't even come through New York City. Uh, but uh, it involved both countries and uh, the Atlanta Constitution and Congress. and So my part of the story was only the beginning of their story, and the, the rest of the story is written up by another minister. And I thought, you know, this is just so odd, it has to be preserved. And it was preserved in a little pamphlet, but I thought, let's put it in a book. So at first it was just the sermons that I wanted to save, uh, eight or twelve or whatever it was, and uh, and the story about the day the Russians came to New York. Uh, and then other things began to accumulate. I thought, you know, my life has been so uh, full of bizarre things that uh, you wouldn't believe unless a clergyman told you, but you have to believe it when a clergyman tells you, don't you? I, I don't know, maybe you don't, but... <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, I, I recall some of these things and things that I had written, and I said, let's just throw in uh, a lot of different uh, things that show what uh, a ministry is like. And uh, also, my wife and I traveled a lot, and things happened in those travels that I couldn't imagine could have happened to anybody else. So 
that's how the ports of call came to be ports of call. It was just uh, various places we've been and things we've done, but this is what the life of a uh, Unitarian minister uh, is like. And thus, one of the messages that you're trying to get across, uh, expect the unusual to happen and make the most of well, it. Well, yeah, I think it must be true for most people that that uh, life is a lot more unpredictable than we tend to think it is. I mean, anything can happen tomorrow. And uh, I have a mindset now that uh, although I've been granted 85 years uh, and uh, have enjoyed them all, uh, you know, it could end tomorrow, and uh, and it could go on uh, uh, another 20 years. I mean, I, I tell my friends I hope to live to be 103, but not 104. And then they say, well, why don't you want to live to be 104? And I say, well, because I don't want to be a burden to anybody. <laughs> and, and, and they have to think about that a bit, and then they realize that uh, I'm just being a, a little bit playful because the future is so... Uh, open-ended, and, and uh, I've I decided that you just go with life with a certain attitude and uh, hope for the best, but be very grateful for what you've had. Can one be religious and open-minded at the same time? Oh, I hope so, because, uh, uh, you know, religion is a great solace to uh, people everywhere around the world, and yet we have to say religion is uh, uh, the cause of uh, many of our wars, or at least the misuse of religion and people's arguments and fighting over religion and uh, and uh, misunderstanding of humanity and so forth. So uh, I, I hope, uh, you know, that uh, people who have religious, deep religious views uh, can still keep their minds open to the idea that they haven't learned everything there is to learn, and, and maybe there's a lot of new stuff out there that uh, they better take advantage of knowing uh, if they're going to keep up with the world. Why did you become a Unitarian minister after serving in uh, other ways before? Yes, well, I, I grew up as a Congregationalist, uh, and that is a liberal Protestant uh, Christian denomination. And I had my first church, which is just on the outskirts of New York City, was a congregational church. And there, as a full-time minister, I had a congregation of about well, I had uh, about fifteen hundred members were uh, uh, coming to the church anyway. Uh, and uh, um, I got involved in a kind of controversy uh, on Long Island. Uh, that involved putting the Lord's Prayer in the schools. And I, I belonged to a, a, a religious council that was made of, of uh, rabbis and ministers and, and one priest, one Catholic priest. And uh, the school board in the town of Cedarhurst, Long Island, wanted to put the Lord's Prayer up on the walls of the high school. And uh, the, it just happened that uh, the school board was made up entirely of Christians, and the, the school body was made up uh, about uh, 95% Jewish. And to put the Lord's Prayer up uh, on the wall uh, would have been uh, sort of an affront to their uh, students' religion. Plus, there was a big question whether it belonged in the public schools anyway or not. And this controversy uh, roiled along, and... 
I happened to be the secretary of that religious council, which incidentally, to a person, said it doesn't belong there, uh, including the Catholic priest and the rabbis and the minister. We were united in this. This was not the thing to do. Uh, and uh, it's at that time that I really began thinking, you know, where is my deepest interest as a clergyman? Is it in promoting a liberal Christian viewpoint, or is it uh, helping the various religions to understand each other better and cope with each other better and, and learn from each other better? And uh, <laughs> my vote came down to uh, the latter, and uh, I didn't see it as a rejection of my Christian upbringing, but as a kind of fulfillment of it. And I went back to the community church where I had served as an intern minister to just to talk to Donald Harrington. That, that was the largest Unitarian church in the country at the time. And I said, Don, how does one become a Unitarian minister? And he said, well, it's, it's funny you should ask because we're having an opening right here at community church and I think you'd be just the guy for it and so I stepped from the from another denomination immediately into the largest unitarian church in the country as their minister of education and it was an easy step for me and people said how did he do that and uh, I don't know exactly how except that the opportunity was there and uh, and I grabbed it and I've been a, a devoted uh, unitarian universalist minister from that point on so that's, that's, in brief, how I became a, a Unitarian minister. And uh, as I say, I'm not rejecting my Christian roots, but I, I feel that uh, this is where, as a Christian uh, minister, I really want to serve. And, and that the future of the world really depends on all the different groups talking calmly with each other and not uh, uh, trying to kill each other. We have more in common than we do have differences. Yeah, indeed we do. Ninety-nine <laughs> percent is in common, and the differences right. unfortunately divide us. Yeah. Right, exactly. Now, in your book, uh, you've included some writings to All Souls Quarterly. You've written, you've included a couple poems. I'm uh, particularly interested why you included annual report to the congregation in your book. <laughs> yes. Well, it was a, a frivolous uh, uh, event. Uh, I had just retired from uh, from All Souls Church, and they they let me retire, providing I continued to do weddings and come in and do whatever I felt uh, needed doing. And uh, uh, and so I, I went to their annual meeting, not knowing whether they wanted a report from their retired minister or not. And uh, I, I sat in the back as uh, reports were given and uh, decided I would scribble out uh, 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 a brief report. And uh, I got up and said, uh, my annual report uh, tonight is just two words. And uh, I kind of heard a gasp go through the people and they you know, what two words could I give them? And then I gave them a whole string of two-word phrases and uh, it was so popular, I, I was reminded of that report year after year, and I thought, well, maybe that report belongs in there, too. It, it's, again, frivolous, but there's there's a lot of uh, advice there, too, that makes one stop and think, you know, am I doing this? Should I not do this? I don't have that report in front of me, but uh, I think you have an idea mm -hmm. of what's in it. Right. 
Well, at the age of 84, 84 years of experience, yes. mm-hmm. uh, what advice uh, do you I'm, have? I have to say this. I'm going to be 85 next Monday. Oh, so, well, congratulations. Uh, Happy I, birthday. I sometimes say 85, <laughs> and my yes. book probably has me as 83 or something. But uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, I'll be 85 on Monday. Time uh, marches yes, I on. I am 84. <laughs> Time marches on. Yes, well, in your this age uh, where you've certainly had them incredible amount of experiences. What advice do you have for those in advanced years? Yes. Well, uh, you know, I'm sort of like a magnet over at All Souls Church today for the people who are getting on in years, and partly because my wife has Alzheimer's, uh, and uh, partly because the minister is supposed to have a certain reservoir of wisdom anyway, I guess. Uh, but uh, people come over to me and say, uh, uh, you know, how is Polly, for instance? And, and I, I will say, well, uh, you know, she's about the same as she has been. I, I recognize what they're really saying underneath is, how are they doing? Uh, because as you get older, you begin to worry. Uh, you know, are you going to be a burden? Or maybe you worry much sooner than that, but certainly when you get older, uh, are you going to be a burden? Are you going to be able to take care of yourself? And we really don't know. Uh, we can be in the best of health and have a stroke or something, and suddenly we're, we're thrown on everybody else's uh, care. Uh, and and as you get older, you just spend a little more time thinking about that. So, And people come up to me and say, uh, you know, I don't remember names the way I used to. And I have to say, well, you know, nobody remembers names quite as well as when they were young. As you get a person who's uh, 90 years old isn't going to be able to rattle off all the names uh, of the kids who were in their elementary school or, or even, I mean, there's a certain process that goes on with aging, uh, but it's not necessarily Alzheimer's. Uh, or or dementia, uh, you just uh, the mind just gets less uh, flexible, and uh, but we we just don't know what's in front of us. I, I uh, one of the stories in Ports of Call is about going to a, uh, a birthday party for a woman who is a hundred years old, and believe it or not, she had seven hundred guests to her birthday party. This was in the ballroom of one of the big hotels in New York. And not everybody got in that thought they were going to get in. She sat in a chair and she greeted everybody as they arrived. Now, she didn't call them by name, but she had something nice to say to everybody, something a little different. And and then she goes in and she is the main speaker at her birthday party. And she speaks for 20 minutes without notes. Her, Her name was Nanny Pollitzer. And she was very important in the Ethical Culture Society. And uh, uh, there were congressmen there. Other people spoke. But she was the main speaker. And at one point, while she's speaking, she said, uh, oh, uh, and she kind of faltered. Uh, well, that's what happens when you get to be 100 years old. And then she goes right on. Saying, uh, and uh, up in the balcony, I, I remember the number 57 sticks in my head. She had 57, not children, but grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and great-great-grandchildren. And they all came down and blew out the 100 candles wow. for her on her cake. Mm-hmm. Well, 
you can just imagine what a scene that was. And as I say, that kind of future could be in front of any of us. I mean, we, we have no idea uh, what we'll be doing five years from now, one year from now, 20 years from right. now. So my advice is keep that mind as open as you can, read new things, do new things, try new things, and uh, always remember how fortunate you are to be where you are. We've been listening to Reverend Richard Leonard. He is the author of his book, Ports of Call, Journeys in Ministry. Reverend, tell us how to get your book. <laughs> I guess uh, you get it. <laughs> You you tell me. It's published by iUniverse, and uh, it's on Amazon.com. Uh, you can get it there. Sure. Um, and you can always get it through the All Souls Church, which is at uh, 1157 Lexington Avenue in New York City. We have a bookstore there, and uh, there are probably other copies floating around. <laughs> Thank you, Reverend Leonard, for being on iUniverse Radio. Well, thank you, sir. This has been a pleasure talking with you, sir. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Okay, we will. We're going to teach you how to tell your money where to go. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. Learn how to be a savvy investor from someone who has your best interest at heart. Pam Otten is a financial advisor who loves to help successful business owners and entrepreneurs understand the mysteries of the investment world. And she's not afraid to share that knowledge. Pam is an unashamed Christian and qualified kingdom advisor, which means she's trained and committed to integrating biblical principles into her financial advice. Pam believes investing isn't rocket science. This is the financial advisor who's in your corner and truly understands and cares about you and helping you achieve your goals. Securities and advisory services are offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA, SIPC. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. Connect with Juliana and connect with what lies beneath. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Juliana is a marriage, family, and child therapist who wants people to connect. Connect with what lies beneath, those truths and answers. And through her counseling practice, she has helped others find their personal power and fulfill their dreams. And she wants to do the same for you. Here on Connect with Juliana. Through intimate discussions, intriguing subject matters, and the expertise of her guests. For more on the show and Juliana, check out her webpage. Connect with Juliana in media.com. Juliana will cover it all. Nothing is off limits. She wants to know what matters to you. Make the connection. Tune in to Toginet to connect with Juliana to find out the facts that could be hidden beneath the surface. Connect with Juliana on Toginet to make a quality connection in your life. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Demystifying Food from Farm to Fork. And the author is Maurice J. Halatic. And Maurice joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Maurice. Yes, uh, good morning, Steve. Great to have you with us. It's uh, a very obviously important discussion because... Of course, the critical nature of food and 
you know, America and the world has changed a lot about food production and all the different things that go on. Some of it quite alarming. Others, uh, a lot of myths out there that you're going to uh, tell us about and debunk those. Uh, let me read what you have written. Based on my lifelong experience with food and farming, demystifying from farm to fork, attempts to delve into many of the current issues on this topic, and along the way comes up with some surprising and convincing material that is quite contrary to much of the conventional wisdom on food, farm, fork dynamic. Well, we take it for granted, don't we? We just go to the store and there it is. And there isn't, most people don't think about it very much. No, uh, quite so. But I think this is actually a good situation. Um, that food is not a challenge thing for the majority of people. But I did try in this book, for those who are really interested in the overall um, umbrella of, of getting food from the field to the fork, there's a lot of detail there that may not be uh, so obvious to people. Um, one of the first myths that I, I uh, tried to debunk was this, this concern that the family farm is a thing of the past. Farms are now uh, big industrial um, uh, complexes. And it, just looking into the uh, U.S. Uh, census, the number one thing that jumps out at me is that the size of farms, if anything, is sliding down slightly. Um, the family farms account for 85% of the food produced. Factory farms, corporate farms, only 15%. And above all, the number of farms under 100 acres is actually an increase. And these are largely people near urban centers who have a professional job of some sort, but have a second sideline raising uh, fruit, vegetables, perhaps chickens for the local market. Well, that's very interesting. That uh, I guess most people wouldn't understand that. We still have this misconception that corporate America is taking over our production of food, and, and that can have some alarming thoughts to it if, uh, if obviously all that they think of is the bottom line, which you have to. You've got to make money or you can't. You know, you can't do anything, so you can't have a business. Um, tell us a little bit about your background, Maurice, and, and why you're such an expert in this. Well, um, I, I come from many generations of farmers. My great-grandparents uh, immigrated from all over Europe, uh, settled in Western Canada in the 1800s. They were pioneers in the land, and I would be, I guess, the fourth or fifth generation and everybody was expecting me to be a farmer. My parents sent me off to university, and then I went on a scholarship, and I went on and got two degrees in agriculture. And this, I suddenly found myself um, joining the Canadian Foreign Service, and I had to say goodbye to the, my possible farming career. And I did agricultural work all over the world in Asia, New Zealand, Germany, for the uh, Foreign Service, plus other activities as well. And then I took early retirement, and I joined a company as an executive that is um, converts uh, straw and corn stover into ethanol. So I had exposure to farms and and farming um, for the last ten years. So I've had a lifelong exposure to food and agriculture in many many different settings. 
A lot of people buy organic foods. They think this is critical for their health. Tell us about how you see that. Um, if they feel it's good for them, it is good for them. But <clears throat> there are three aspects of organic food. It's supposed to taste better. It's supposed to be more nutritious. And it's, it's supposed to be lower on uh, uh, chemicals. On the first two, on taste, actually first two things, taste and nutrition, both are dependent on a whole, whole long list of things, such as the type of soil, the, the variety of the plant or animal, um, when it was harvested, uh, how mature it was when harvested, how long it was stored, how well it was stored, how it was transported, uh, the rain and not rain and sunshine during the growing season, on and on it goes. And, but one variable is how the farmer farms. And even the difference between organic farming and non-organic farming, most of the procedures are quite similar. So when it all boils down, there's a dozen or so factors that impact on flavor and nutrition. And it would be quite surprising if, in reality, um, there was much difference between the two. And the, um, the British and now more recently Stanford University have done a, um, a, a very a meta-analysis of all the literature on the nutrition of organic foods. And they basically come up with a conclusion that doesn't surprise me. There isn't much difference. On the chemical side of things, yes, the, 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 the all things being equal, it's like, less likely that you'll find chemicals in organic food. What about genetically modified food plants? I'll help us understand that and how uh, important that is, or is that just a, a, some kind of a myth that we don't have to think about or worry about? Okay. <clears throat> the difference between conventional breeding and organic, uh, not organic, and uh, uh, genetically modified plants <clears throat> is that the genetically modified ones actually have their genes altered within the plant, while natural selection in conventional breeding, you just took the best plants and kept growing them. Um, there's a big growing population out there, and it's demonstrated that um, genetically modified uh, crops generally considerably out-yield the non-GMO crops. But even more important, with, um, with uh, insect-resistant uh, genetically modified crops, um, um, uh, Roundup or uh, herbicide-resistant crops, there's much less chemicals going on the land. And above all, if you can control the weeds early in the season with chemicals, you don't have to plow the land or cultivate the land. And this cuts back on fuel, wind erosion, water erosion, uh, more matter is left in the fields, and less fuel is used. So it's, there are huge advantages to uh, genetic modification, uh, not just economic, but, but sustainability issues. Now, the health concerns bother some people, but there really haven't been any serious studies that debunk, uh, that, that, that say it's unhealthy. There are studies that come up now and again. But the Europeans, who insist on labeling genetically modified food products have come up with a huge analysis that they've been looking at data for 25 years and they concluded that genetically modified crops are no different on a safety or other <clears throat> level than, um, than uh, conventional crops. So, and, that, and the Europeans are more skeptical about genetic modification than they are in North America. 
there are warnings about danger in using hormones and antibiotics in livestock production. How do you see that? Okay, on the on antibiotics, if the animal is is truly sick, like a human being, um, don't let it suffer and, and, and don't let it die. Uh, it makes sense to use antibiotics. But this is very, you know, as often as a human uses antibiotics once every two, three years or so. That is not an issue. But what is an issue that I take, um, do not, I'm not very comfortable with, and a lot of people aren't, is this constant feeding of low level of antibiotics as a preventative measure. And this, of course, um, creates a perfect environment for um, <clears throat> um, bacteria or germs to develop a resistance to that antibiotic, many of which are used by hum in humans as well, and some of these um, uh, pathogens also can can affect uh, humans. So that is a a negative um, a negative feature of using antibiotics. Um, the on hormones. The one of the things that people don't realize is poultry and hogs, no hormones are used, it's no advantage, so it's just not used. So don't worry about those two products. Most of the world, Canada, Europe, Japan, do not allow hormones in dairy cattle. <clears throat> and actually about one third of the US dairy herd has does apply hormones. It supposedly boosts production. I don't see any advantage in doing that. Now, as far as uh, beef cattle are concerned, hormones are used and it's demonstrated you get more beef with less feed if, if you uh, use hormones. So there is a real economic and, 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 and even environmental advantage there. Um, and there have been lots and lots of tests and the health issues there are, 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 have not been demonstrated that there are health issues by using hormones in, in beef cattle. What's what's the role of government in today's uh, food production? How you know is is should government stay out of food production? Um, if you want family farms, uh, if you want farms, th there has to be a safety net. The food industry is too big to insure, and too precious to leave just in the hands of farmers who may go bankrupt if there is a bad storm or a drought or whatever. So. As a backstop, I think it is essential that government plays a role quietly in the background when, when, the, when the chips are down because as we started out this discussion, um, the, the food in the store that we take for granted is a wonderful, wonderful way of life. Just think if this presidential campaign was moving ahead and food scarcity was an issue because government wasn't taking good care of farmers. It is not on the agenda. It shouldn't be in the agenda, and that's good. But it doesn't. That food just doesn't accidentally happen either. How important is it for most of us to learn how to garden? Do you think that's a, a key thing in in today's modern world? Um, you have to enjoy it. Um, you know, if, if if you use the word have, to, you know, should garden have to garden. I, I think it is a wonderful hobby. It gives you fresh air. It gives you good food. Um, it's uh, environmentally very good, it's sustainable, it's got all the things going for it, and I really encourage anyone with a patch of land or even a balcony that they can plant a few things in to go for it. But if, if you're not enjoying it, 
you're not going to get much production out of it because you have to take care of a garden. You just can't stick in a tomato uh, in the spring and then harvest it in the fall. It has to be tended and pruned and staked up and, and, and watched for bugs and, and what have you. So it's, it's a wonderful hobby. I encourage anybody to go into it. But if, if you don't go into it for the fun, don't bother. And in, in addition to the home garden, what about the backyard uh, chicken coop, uh, the backyard chicken uh, egg production? Well, actually I've got a chapter of that in my book. Um, and, I, and I looked into it because I thought this is a nice, fun thing. And the first thing that I worked out, it's really expensive to raise, you know, a dozen chickens because you've got to build a, a rat-proof uh, and, and probably a warm shelter for them. You've got to tend to them twice a day, uh, and they cost money all the way along. And I worked it out. <clears throat> a dozen eggs from your backyard uh, chicken coop is about three times as much as a dozen eggs that you buy in the store. If you want to do it as a hobby um, and not look at the bottom line, and a hobby that takes a lot of care, um, sure, fine. But it, but it's 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 not really the best use of money or time as far as I'm concerned. In general, is the food we eat safe? Yes. Um, <clears throat> just think about it. Life expectancy is going up. Um, the Center of Disease Control in Atlanta, you know, the birth defects uh, and cancer rates haven't really budged over the last few decades. Um, I think, the, you know, it's not 100% safe, but walking up and down stairs kills a lot more people than... Uh, than uh, foodborne illnesses in North America. Well, you have a lot of chapters in your book covering all kinds of different issues in the food industry. Uh, one, it, one that sometimes is in the news about biofuels, especially uh, corn production is taking away from uh, what the traditional use of corn has been to feed livestock, to have it obviously for human consumption. What about this biofuel controversy? Okay. One of the things the biofuel industry has done, it has boosted the corn yield on the same acres by almost exactly the amount of, um, of um, corn that goes into biofuels. And the way I look upon it, it's, it's like a, um, a, a kind of a, a safety level that if this year's drought really gets bad, they're going to cut back on ethanol, A, because of the uh, price, or maybe the government will just, just temporarily take away the, uh, um, you know, the support. Well, thanks to ethanol, there's been a big boost in corn production, and I use the analogy in the book. This is like a family saving all year to go on a holiday, and then suddenly there's an unexpected big uh, expense, they use the holiday funds to, to, to cover the, the family expense. The, 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 you know, the finance of the family remain intact. They, they miss the holiday, but everything is just fine otherwise. Same thing with ethanol. There, there's a, about a 4 billion bushel uh, corn um, money in the bank, so to speak, that if the world gets hungry, um, too bad ethanol, and um, that, that corn can move into human food on a moment's notice. Maurice, we have time for a closing thought. Anything that you would like to share with us just in, these, in a, a minute that we have left? Sure. Well, I wrote the book um, with, with the typical urban dweller or even farmer in mind that on the whole range of the 32 chapters in the book, 
um, there are issues that are in the current uh, media that they can look at in my book and perhaps understand better. They don't have to agree with me, but I try and give a balanced point of view throughout on all these topics just to equip the average person with a strong interest in food, the ability to discuss issues and understand them when they read or hear about them. We've been listening to Morris J. Haladic. He is the author of his book, Demystifying Food from Farm to Fork. Maurice, tell us how to get your book. Um, it's on the iUniverse um, website. It's on Amazon, or you can order it through your favorite bookstore. Thank you, Maurice, for being with us on iUniverse Radio. I enjoyed it, Steve iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.